This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 31st, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Systemic risk is the risk we all must bear for private actors' decisions. But what is it? Would anything like a systemic risk regulator have any better chance of controlling the beast than the finest minds on Wall Street? Cato Institute senior fellow Peter Van Doren is editor of Regulation Magazine. He says one kind of systemic risk can be controlled to some extent, and the other kind, well, that's the kind of risk we're dealing with now. As best you can figure, what is the operational definition of systemic risk from the perspective of Bernanke and Geithner and these fellows? That's an interesting question. I mean, there, there are two possibilities. One is uh, direct, what economists call counterparty contagion, which is I uh, have some, many of my assets tied up in your um, bank, and so if that bank fails, then because I have my assets in your bank, I fail too because it's a big percentage of my net worth. And then if someone invests in me and they're not diversified, then a high percentage of their net worth goes down if I go down and so on and so on. So the the metaphor used in the press is dominoes, right? So we kind of one one bank fails and then the others fail because of their direct interlocking, again, we sometimes hear the word they're interconnected, well, interlocking direct asset relationships. Um, So, for example, a non-finance example would be um, if GM fails, then a parts supplier that who sells 30 or 40 percent of its output to GM would fail because it can't lose 40% of its business. So in banking, it would be if Lehman Brothers fails, then the top creditors to Lehman Brothers fail because they, uh, their money goes to zero when Lehman Brothers fails. And they not only lose money, but it's a fairly high percentage of their money. So that's the key. In the, the, it's an empirical question, not a theoretical question, which is how diversified are financial institutions with each other. If they're not, i.e., if one bank has 20 or 30% of its assets tied up in another bank, then the failure of the first bank would lead to the failure of the second bank, and so on and so on. And that's what financial economists call direct counterparty contagion. We're lucky in some sense, and that is we have examples of uh, institutions that were allowed to fail and institutions that were not allowed to fail. And I guess in real time, it's hard to uh, judge the actions of the Federal Reserve or Treasury in, in making those types of determinations. But in making those types of determinations, what were they acting on if not this specific kind of risk uh, related to how much money is tied up in or in each other's uh, hands in each other's pockets, essentially. I don't know. I mean, there's another theoretical possibility, although I'll describe why you can't do much about it um, if you prevent one bank from failing. And that would be something called informational contagion rather than counterparty contagion. So if markets suddenly become aware that Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or whatever has invested a lot in certain kinds of assets, i.e. mortgages, for example, or mortgage-backed securities, then other institutions that also have invested a lot in those kinds of assets, once the first entity fails or seems to be failing, then 
market actors reevaluate the prices of and their uh, sentiment towards other financial institutions that have similar kinds of assets in their portfolio. So we can learn something not in real time, but looking backwards, which is from the failure of Lehman Brothers. Notice that, well, you don't know, I'm going to describe for you, that we can look at the top 10 creditors or top 20 creditors to Lehman Brothers and then ask whether they are the current institutions that are in trouble. In other words, was Citibank a large creditor to Lehman Brothers? Was IndyMac? Was Washington Mutual? Was any of the other financial institutions that have been very tied up in this mortgage um, market? And no one on the podcast will know, probably, unless they've they've read the papers, but um, the top creditor to Lehman Brothers in its bankruptcy was a bank in Japan, whose name is, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, A-O-Z-O-R-A, Ozora Bank, and they had $463 million was lost to that bank as a result of them being the top creditor to Lehman Brothers. They had assets. The bank has assets of $7.4 billion, so that was 6% of their assets. But that bank didn't fail. In other words, 6% isn't 20%. 6% is rather high for a bank to be to have tied up in one institution, um, but it's not 20% or 30 like an auto parts supplier uh, in its dealings with, with General Motors. The um, So... Basically, uh, economists who've looked at the counterparties that were large creditors to Lehman Brothers, none of them are the other entities that we now talk about as being in trouble. And again, so the so what we've learned from the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy is that what's going on is not direct counterparty contagion, but it's informational contagion. And what's interesting is if you think through it, there's nothing if if propping up an institution to keep it going does nothing to prevent informational contagion. Whereas if there were counterparty contagion by keeping the first institution from going bankrupt, you do then lead to the rest of the institutions from going bankrupt as well because they have direct ties to each other. But all the institutions that are now in trouble don't have direct ties to Lehman Brothers, and yet they're still in trouble. And the answer, and why are they in trouble? And the answer is they all invested in the same kinds of things, but they didn't have direct relationships uh, to each other. And the downside, as you say, is that there's not much you can do about that. Keeping the first institution healthy, or sorry, keeping the first institution from going bankrupt does nothing to prevent investors from updating their informational views of others and then saying they have invested in the same things as well and therefore we should devalue them because they all invested in the same bad mortgage-related instruments. From the perspective of informational contagion, is there anything that makes institutions uh, more likely to be, however diversified, diversified in, in, in almost the same manner? In other words, why did all these entities invest in mortgage-related things? Um, because it was a moneymaker. I mean, while it, as, as the weird thing about this is it, it was all fine until it wasn't. Um, there was money in world capital markets, and it wanted uh, safe investments, and mortgages were thought as being safer than other things. And in fact, AAA rated asset-backed securities under the Basel One, not the new Basel II, but the old Basel One, 1988-1989, banking regulatory standards. AAA rated uh, asset-backed securities had only one-fifth of the risk of normal commercial loans. So 
if you're a bank and you make a commercial loan, you had to put 10% or 8% aside under capital standards, right, when you make that kind of loan. If you package the same kinds of loans and have it AAA rated, then you only had to put aside 1.6 to 2% of it for capital uh, when you make the same kind of loan. So in effect, this is a, a regulatory arbitrage big enough to drive a, a bank through, which is what, what we did. And so, and the ironic thing about the Basel I standards is they were designed in wake of the SNL problems in the early 80s, and they were designed by central banks to make going forward our banking system much more safe than it had been when the previous debacle hit in the early 80s. So um, this, um, why investors and capital went into mortgage-backed securities and other AAA-rated asset-backed securities was because until they weren't safe, they were considered very safe. Is that a problem in the nature of ratings? Um, I know many people argue, or some people argue, that we are in the fix we're in directly because of regulation. But my own sense is that um, there, in banking markets, there's always a discussion of how much capital to have on hand in case something goes south. And the choices are 0% or 100%, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, that 100% would be narrow banking, and 0% would be totally leveraged uh, mayhem. And the after each crisis in finance, we then say, we need higher capital standards. And But I'm not sure, I mean, they help, but what's ironic is UBS, which is a Swiss bank, um, Swiss had... Their banks had much higher capital than all other banks um, in the world, and yet UBS got caught up in this as well. Its its capital, which is way above the 10% standard that's normally used as a measure of safety and soundness, they had um, uh, the Swiss government required UBS and Credit Suisse to have even more capital than that, and even that wasn't enough because they got caught up in the notion of of mortgage-backed securities as being risk-free money, um, i.e. AAA rated and in housing, and housing prices don't go down. And we now know that that turns out not to be true all the time, but it, but many, many, many people um, believe that. And it wasn't just a product of regulation, I think, also, although regulations did help everyone jump on the bandwagon by by saying AAA-backed securities had to have less capital behind them than everything else. Peter Van Dorn is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation magazine. You can subscribe to Regulation at Cato.org.